Nightmare Box presents The Art of War Gaming. I'm Yog Malark. And I'm Onishiro. And welcome back, sir. I am so happy to have you back. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. It was it was lovely to have Kaji and Juniper on the show. I, I think they both brought some excellent insight yes. to the topics we were talking about. But uh, yeah, you're you're in the picture with me. So <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, dog. Yes. And and you just have this flow to you. You just like I don't know. You just bring this inexorably cool to my my straight straight lacedness. Oh whoa! whoa. Yes. Fan the flames, good yes. sir. Gee whiz. Well, I mean, you know, I have nothing but the same to say for you. See, and and, and maybe that's it. Maybe they just didn't praise me enough. I think that might be it. But Odin's back, and that is excellent. And and we are here to talk about on the march, being on the march, and uh, and, and we're, we're taking this to mean two kind of separate things. One, being in a transitory state on the field of battle, mm-hmm. uh, or having your units be in a transitory state, which is mo- moving between places on a field of battle, and uh, also to say, um, well, uh, how how it is, literally. I mean. <laughs> Truly, <laughs> being on the march is a huge thing. We discussed last time that logistics um, play a huge part. Many wars, many battles are won and lost on on logistics purely. And so, being on the march may be a very perilous part of this because you have a lot of things to keep worrying about. As we'll see in the super secret battle that we'll be talking about <gasps> later. Yes, yes, we're keeping it a secret till the very end because I want to see if you, the listeners, can guess before we get to the end. Uh, no cheating. Mm. Yes. So, um, <laughs> we've got a couple of things to talk to you about before we get to that point, though. Um, the first one is, before we get into this chapter, I want to talk about how, if you're reading along at home, you're going to notice that we've reorganized the information uh, somewhat. Um, I found that at least taking the ideas and putting them in a little bit of a different order matched the flow of the way we kind of discuss things mm. a little bit better. We're still going to be using some of the same language and the same ideas that Sun Tzu uses, but you might notice that it's out of order. That is why. Um, forgive us. Forgive us, yes. <laughs> but I think, I agree, I think it's a good change. I thought it just made more sense in terms of just like the progression of where you're going. Mm. You know, you start in your camp, which then you situ- end up on the field. Right, which situation you're going to come into first. Right, right, exactly. Um, but yeah, so uh, first off, I want to talk We, we want to talk about a little bit about the Gladiators, this, uh, oh. this high school program that Oni and I uh, help run. And Oni was there today. Um, you, have some, you have some words for me you wanted to, you wanted to discuss. Some mm-hmm. progress report. On the yeah. Oh, it's it's getting hairy. It's it's wild. Like the last couple of weeks, you know, I've been a little bit rusty. I can't, you know, I've noticed I can't get away with certain things. You know, just that kind of situation. Right, when right. when you're dealing with like a young group that doesn't have a lot of experience, you can really mess with them in certain ways that are. You know, you can't mess with other fighters in that right, manner. Right, right. Like certain stancing that would be punished by somebody who was faster. Easily, yeah. And now we're definitely to that point where even the newest of fighters won't fall victim to that kind of thing. Oh, they ain't putting up with your BS no more. No, not even a tiny little bit. And I absolutely love it. It's fantastic. The veteran fighters this time, before our, our last group before this had a very uh, relaxed, like, 
casual fighting. They just, you know, they just had fun and and they didn't really have a very strong senior group, year four group to fight against. Right. So they built thusly. They built just off of their own style and then their uh, mentor's style that they learned things from, but not from like any uh, skilled peers. But this run, they're now the juniors and seniors are all battle hardened. They've been fighting those guys mm-hmm. for a long time and building off a decent, you know, group. And now they are absolutely fantastic. And for where they're at, it's incredible. And the it shows from the bottom up. The newest fighters are good. They're coming in, having a hard time, just like anyone starting does. Mm-hmm. But they're picking up the basics and fundamentals super quick. And they're, like, it's clean. Well, for what I'm from hearing from you and the overall coordinator is that um, our older students have actually picked up the habit of teaching the younger students a yes. lot of technique. Yes, yeah. Uh, a specific uh, hard-shelled reptile uh, <laughs> <laughs> is absolutely doing phenomenal. He's running 12 shots. He's fighting with people off the field. He's showing people techniques, like, s- selflessly. It's fantastic. That's what you want to see as a teacher, for sure. Yep. And, yeah, abs- and this time, this week, one of the first rounds we had, one of our fighters, he's a little on the taller side, you know, like a 6'1", six, 6'2", six, he's a tall okay. kid. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like tall fighters suffer a little bit at the beginning from, like, the long limb syndrome. We like, do. Yeah. It's a strength, but it's hard to, like, understand exactly how to take advantage of it. He was clumsy at first. You know, his first year was a little rough for him. Uh, but this year, I I saw him line up, lay on. He threw so many absolutely stellar, clean, 12-shot style, like, free-end combo. No intentional, like, one, two, one, two, three but just like wham, 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 wham. Every shot was decisive, clean, and just absolutely gorgeous. Now that is that is so good to hear, and I am glad to hear he is progressing than I, for, faster than I did. Because um, like you were saying, tall fighters seem to have a... You, you assume, because you get that extra reach, that it's actually going to be a huge boon um, for the fight itself. But often when you're, when you're sitting there and you're engaged with an opponent, that, that same reach <clears throat> excuse me, applies to the rest of your body as well. So you're actually a much larger target, especially if you're standing up straight. Um, <clears throat> oh, <clears throat> frog, throat. Mm. Um, so, it, it, yeah, I, I can absolutely understand why, why he struggled. And and I and all you tall fighters out there who might be struggling with the same thing, this idea of not being able to quite get all your limbs and your torso under control, I would recommend practicing the horse stance a yeah. lot more because the idea is to get low. Um, Solid grounding. I like to get as low, like eye level, with my opponent's eye level. So if you're fighting against a very short fighter, you're going to need to have some good thigh strength. But it's it keeps them from being able to use that much more of your body as a weak zone. Um, I have a, a good friend, Dyer, who walked under me. I think I've told this story before, but like when she first moved to the realm, she just would hold up her shield basically kind of above her head and walk under my shots and walk under my threat range and 
kill me. And, and she just did this for weeks, months, and I, and I was so frustrated until I realized my height wasn't actually an advantage. Truly. Yeah, it's like a coiled snake. You yeah. know, yep, yep. if you keep that low stance grounded, you're ready to strike and let loose your range. Mm. But if you're hanging tall, it's just like, it's like a traveling snake. Instead, you're not prepared for a counterattack. You're not prepared for someone to reach out on you. In order to get that good kinetic energy, you first have to have that coiled potential energy. The spring. That's a great image. That was a great image. No, I like that. Thank you. <laughs> Inspired by your words. No, and so it's it, I mean it's good to hear that that they're teaching. It's good to hear that there's improvement happening. Um, yeah, the, the, teaching these kids is is very 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 rewarding, and mm-hmm. it's good to see them growing and becoming better members of the community in the process. That's the whole point. Yeah. Now, if we can just get them to come out to the darn Stygia field, <laughs> that would be the next step. Um, uh, they some of them make it out for sure. Yeah, I, uh, I do see him from time to time. The har- the hard backed reptile. Yeah. He he was like, yeah, I had a great time on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> totally ate a red to the face. <laughs> Perfect. Oh my Perfect. gosh, he's such a tank, though. Man, I've never. Ah, oh, he's just ah. Oh, he just ignores damage. He does not care. It's he's. Well, one of the things that that Belagarth is really good about, I think, is teaching you that you're not made of glass. Because mm. I mean, when you first start getting hit, you're not used to it. You're, yeah. Uh, nobody's used to getting impacted, even by a foam weapon, it is often startling, um, es- jarring, or especially when it's at such high force. Yeah, especially at such a, a young level. I mean. A lot of kids, they come out there this first their first time, and we are the first adults to ever engage them in combat. Yep. And so there's that to get over at first. There's this this whole, like, they're not used to it idea. But after they get over it, after they get over the fact that, no, you're even if it stings a little bit, which often a good shot does, um, it's not going to hurt you, hurt you. It's a safe piece of equipment. If yep. it's been checked, which we do regularly. Um and, and after they do that, they can they can grow, and suddenly the flinching. I mean, once you can get past the flinching, the idea of closing your eyes, that, oh, I was, <laughs> where your opponent is throwing a shot at you. Uh, I mean, it seems ridiculous on this end of things, but like I remember, I remember mm-hmm. for for a, longer than I probably should have, I definitely flinched anytime anybody threw a shot. Yeah, take took the thought out of my mind, the words out of my mouth. Yeah, that's and that's like the biggest hurdle for people at first. You know, you spend time as a kid stick fighting right you know and you're running like really honestly most of the time those kids are running 20 percent just because they don't know they don't know how to swing a sword they're just they're just doing it they're just having fun you know and they're trying not to hurt each other most of the time yeah most of the time well you know and then some people have that friend you know and that's where you build those kinds of like reactions to you know you're playing with all your all your homies having a good old 15 20 percent time and then here comes Steve. He likes to roll 75%, 80% for no reason. Nobody and then likes Steve. And then everyone's like, whoa, dude, I don't know about stick fighting anymore. And that builds that, like, flinch. You're young. You have a scary incident. You know, somebody gets smacked in the face really hard. Dude, it's like you're reading a, a piece out of my own personal biography because... <laughs> 
when I was younger, I was the I was the oldest of my I'll say quote unquote siblings because it was mm-hmm. myself, my younger brother, and then my younger cousin David and my younger cousin Carrie, who were really siblings. We were all raised very similarly and very near to each other, and so they're very much siblings to me. Yeah. Um, and I was we were te- we were doing the stick fighting thing, as most young people do, and I was attempting to impart to my younger cousin that he shouldn't try be trying to dodge a thrown stick, but he should try to block it instead. And after two or three failed attempts, because he would just dodge out of the way, which, honestly, in hindsight, BT dubs David, you are absolutely right. Dodging is always better than blocking, <laughs> if, you can, if you can do it, just because, uh, yeah, that you don't get hit at all. But um, You were at that young age that you were looking for the skill check. I was, I was, and so I hollered at him to block it, and he did. Except that the point then like got a little bit of extra force, and I thought it got him in the eye. Because suddenly he goes over, he's clutching his eye area, and he and I'm like, oh no, I've just taken my cousin's eye out, um, and I threw the stick. I told him <laughs> to hold still. There is no way I am escaping this. My my parents will kill me. His parents will kill me. Like, <laughs> like it was just you're getting and, double jeopardy. And then and then he took his hands away from his eye and thank thank God it was just like near the eye, just kind of down on that bony ridge, and it was still bleeding pretty good. But his eye was fine. Um, well, yeah. good, good, good for you to not get in that kind of trouble and awesome for your cousin to not lose his high. <laughs> He's the best man of the wedding too. So oh, like, excellent. Yeah, we're, we're solid. All you got to do is hit somebody in the eye with a stick and you're solid for life. It's, <laughs> it's a rule. Um, uh, yeah. there it is. That's how it's born. Yep. You have that realization that damage is real, Yeah. you know, and you're like, Oh, shit. <gasps> excuse my French. <laughs> <laughs> we try so hard. We try so hard not to swear, but both Oni and I swear a decent amount in real life. Not vindictively, it's just a catharsis thing, you know, but we try to keep it clean for the show, but we know that you guys probably enjoy the occasional sorge sound that Kristen dubs over the uh, the swear words that get through, so <laughs> thank you, Kristen, and uh, thank you guys as well. Um, but yeah, so yeah, getting over that, that first that first shock, getting over those those shocks of even controlled violence being committed nearby can be hard, not even just for kids. Like, there's a lot of adults that come by mm. and they're like, oh, look, it's a LARP. And then they get involved and they're like, oh, this is this is combat. These, these nerds are hitting us. Um, <laughs> and it becomes a totally different reality for them. You That's, know? That is most often the situation when people... Are come in with that attitude, like, oh, sure, yeah, dude, yeah, uh huh, yeah, I can swing stick, yeah, uh huh. And you're like, okay, oh, wait, wait a second. (laughs) I mean, I also think there's something to it that when anybody within hearing distance hears somebody who's come up to try it speaking like that, we all salivate just a little bit, (laughs) just a little bit. Um, Yes. Because it's like, oh, was that a challenge? Yeah. <laughs> D- did he bite his thumb, sir? I do believe he bit his thumb at you. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, so with the gladiators, I always applaud them because they're, they're taking on a daunting task of not just taking on their older peers who are better schooled in this combat sport than they are, but also taking on adults who are better skilled in this than they are. And I, and I hope that we cultivate a... a community and, and, a, and a space that is good sportsmanship and welcoming and a teaching community so that even though they may not be at the same skill level, then I don't feel completely left out from everything. But still, I mean, we've got everything else going on as a high schooler. 
yeah, oh. uh, these these kids are heroes to me. I absolutely love them. I agree. There's some real, real stellar kids out there. Speaking of which, I had a wonderful extracurriculatory conversation with one of our students about For Honor. Oh, yes. And I know you've been digging deep. I have been working my little tailbone off, um, trying to get enough of that iron saved up to buy the Sunda character. And I am absolutely in love because I, my main is Orochi, um, for, if I haven't said that before. And Orochi is this extremely fast, uh, kind of dodge-oriented character that relies on a lot of light strikes. But executions are important because they keep the person from being able to be revived. Mm. And so it's being able vital. to finish with an execution is a really important thing to be able to do. So that means you have to finish with a heavy. I don't like the Orochi's heavies because comboing from the light to the heavy with the Orochi feels clumsy. And so it was the one complaint that I've had about for Orochi's is not being able to get those executions. And then they released the Sunda, who is also a dodge and evasion specialist who... But instead of just having this this light attack that they can spam from the side, they also have uh, heavies that they can alternate with. Very strong mix-up <clears throat> game. Yes. And so I have been absolutely loving uh, the Sunda character because, yeah, it, it is basically everything that I wanted improved in the Orochi has been in this particular character. And I think that kind of touches on, like, what we were talking about with real styles reflecting in gameplay choice. I mean, I don't know if I've gone deep into that because that's a game theory type thing, but that's, there's some amazing, you can pick up some amazing things from this ridiculous game that people would not expect, such as my Florentining and berserking nonsense. Right. And for you, that is very much one of your styles. You love long one two-handed swords mm-hmm. long single weapon and that the sundaw's blade is very similar to like a uh, min red or a little over min red mm-hmm. and that's your style so it like clicks for your mind and i think that makes it adaptable to you i think so too i mean it's it's kind of the way that i fight in a lot of ways um a lot of the other characters feel clumsy to me because I don't think in those ways. Um, but but they make sense to other people. Obviously, like Lawbringer is a character I struggle against when they're in good hands because my <laughs> that's a good character. Yeah. Um, but apart from that, I yeah, I, I it's it's God, it's just a fun character. Just yeah. a fun character because oh. again, if, if you just I feel I feel like he you can just think. And then they do what you want them to do. Yes. And that is, like, a thing they've been trying to do is, like, go into these free-flowing, open-ended combos. Mm-hmm. And that's something you can really achieve with the Sunda. Yeah. like, you can make reactive decisions, you know? And, I mean, one of his biggest problems is how easily he's punished. Yes. But if you, uh, or how devastating punishes are for him. Mm-hmm. Like, his dash heavies, I don't know if you've noticed yet... But is dash heavies uh, when they get parried, they count as light parries, and that is absolute. I mean, you're eating a heavy against almost every character. Yeah. So, but on the other end of it, 
it's so open-ended if you can throw out all sorts of different combos and connections and just keep flowing with the character he's really difficult to read and and for me just like with the orochi i rely on the counter fighting aspect i wait for my opponent to do something that provides me an opening and then i exploit that and try to keep exploiting it until there is no more exploitation to be had truly hopefully victory has been achieved at that point <laughs> just saying yeah. hey, oh. he has some beautiful victories i absolutely love all of his executions and his gear yeah fantastic character well done no yeah and, and uh, yeah he's fun He's fun. So yeah, well done for Runner. Uh, that was a, an excellent character to add to the game and has definitely improved my gaming experience, though I've, I've made a few people rage quit at this point in like duels and stuff. Uh, you grow stronger. Yes. <laughs> I feed off their rage. <laughs> or not. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let it consume you. You can't. You can't. I mean, and, and, and the whole idea, any time for me, is to maintain a good community. Like, after every fight in this, I'm always saying good match. Like, even, even if I completely devastated the person, the fact that we were there, we were playing the game together, they got a little bit of practice, I got some practice, I consider that a good match. I'm not trying to be condescending yep. or anything like that. I just, I just want to say that. Yep, you know? I'm the same exact way. In fact, I'm, like, one of those, like, honor fighters I'll, if we open up a duel I'm like good fight good fight and mm-hmm. immediately like do the bow emote and stuff even if I lose every time you know like I'll still do it I will wait I stance up like the, when, the, when the battle goes I will just stand where I am and stance up and wait and if my opponent goes into a stance and does the little opening bow or whatever mm-hmm. I will then follow suit because I think it's cool um, and I think the animations are really well done but if they come charging in, like some of the gladiator characters like to do, then I'm like, all right, then I'm just sidestepping, and I guess we're going then. Yep. I, I'm bad. I, I, but see, I guess in a lot of ways, you'll, you'll get there. I used to do that. But now I use it as a bait. Oh, yeah. You see, you'll know. You'll start to see those guys more and more often, and you'll be like, oh. You'll see the read. They just start moving forward. And bow, and you bow anyways, boom, and it, it's like a raider. So you're like ready for that top light, right, right. And you just go right into it, bang. You can parry, you can deflect right out of your emote, and it's so punishing. They don't even, they don't even see it coming. Or for you, you just do the bow, right into the dodge. <laughs> yep, and it's it's demoralizing. Sure, because I think they're gonna get a free hit or two on you, and then you're not there. Yeah, and you got the you got the. You got the good fight in. I suppose that's I what's worse because they're like, no, screw that. I'm coming at you. And you're like, oh, cool, whatever. Good I fight, bro. Me, bro. Yeah. <laughs> I dig. Uh, yeah, I like it. But yeah, I, I, and so yeah, building that community is huge. And you know, and it's, it's good in everything too. Like Warhammer clubs also kind of rely on, on the, the building of community. Mm. And... So our Warhammer Club, uh, the Black Lotus sector here, uh, that, that a lot of us, it, it's like a Stygian crossover. There's a lot of us who play Belagarth that kind of got into the Warhammer as well. And uh, Warmaster Sumatai has been running this tournament for the last several months, and it came to completion. And the last game that we did was the one that I did uh, the other day against Juniper. You would have, will recall uh, Juniper and I talking about that game coming up uh, on our show and looking forward to it. And I told you that I'd let you know what happened. 
And I want to give another huge shout-out to Juniper because she was an excellent opponent. She played her army exceptionally well, and I felt like most of the rounds, the mass majority of the rounds, I had no idea who was going to win. A couple of times I thought she was going to win. It was a very good game. Um, But I ended up winning uh, with a score that I do not believe reflected the difficulty of the game because <laughs> I, I scored rather high and she didn't score nearly as high as I thought she just deserved through through the sheer effort. But um, yeah, it was it was an excellent game. But I won and uh, and yeah, so the tournament is concluded. Um, good game, good, good game. match, good all game. around. Yeah, and and excellent matches. Like I, every person I went against, we had some excellent matches. It was a a great community building exercise and yeah yeah so <sighs> love you Junie now it's just back to oh yeah you, you haven't seen Juniper in a while have you no no she misses you too uh, <laughs> uh, I need to give her hugs <laughs> uh. but yeah so now it's back to ITC prep because I still am determined uh, to go to my first internet uh, ITC uh, tournament somewhere this next year. I, mm. I need to break onto the scene. I want to. I know that I I do decently well. I feel I feel pretty good about how I perform here locally, but I'd really like to see how I do against uh, better players. You know. Yeah, you're you're ready to hit ranked. Well, I, yeah, and I don't. I, I I'm not saying that I I feel like I'm going to just steal the first tournament that I go into or Mighty Ducks any of this. Like that's that's not my assumption. Um, but I but I do have a good grasp of the rules and I have a good grasp of the way that the game is played. And uh, yeah, I'd like to start learning from from a wider brand of player because and not to insult the the community here in Missoula. Um, I've had some good games at the tournaments that I've been able to attend here, but. Um, there's a guy I know named Nick Natavati. Not that I know. I've never met him, but uh, that I've heard of named Nick Natavati. You know of And him. other such names. I'd love a, uh, a rematch with El Rath. He was mm. actually the first, like, I think he's considered a pro player. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure he's considered a pro, pro player. I know that his, his wife um, paints, or Sphinx, she, she paints and, and makes a living off of painting because she's incredible yeah. at it. Um, but one time when we were going down to Battle for the Ring, Elrath was generous enough to host Turkey Feathers and I, and we spent a day playing Warhammer against him. And we each brought an army, and half the day was spent with Turkey Feathers fighting him, and then I fought him. And both times he... I mean, imagine in your mind a young person who has never really been in a fight, who is taking a swing at an Aikido master... And the ease with which that Aikido master sets that youth on the ground in a painful knot. Yes. Mm. And you'll have a fairly good idea of how these games went. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, TF and I were both still very young to this game. We were both, we were both uh, thinking we were getting pretty good, but we did not uh, have anywhere near the level of mastery that he did. And uh, it was beautiful. It was beautiful to watch. I wasn't even mad. I was just sitting there watching him do it. I'm like, oh, man. I can see all my st- mistakes unfolding before me, but there's nothing I can do about it because he's right there <laughs> <laughs> to show me in real time. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm eager to go against other players like that. You know, other players that I may I may absolutely get the the Jesus whooped out of me, but you know, I, you learn so much. You learn so much yeah. from going against players like that. <sighs> 
Yeah, you're ready to fight some uh, high rep lawbringers who are going <laughs> to parry bait you and just punish you for every mistake you make. Oh, they do too. That's like the one class I struggle against hardcore in, in Dang Duel for Honor is I those mean, lawbringers. You, you touched upon it, but you didn't describe what your problem was. And then you started talking about this, and that's exactly it right yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Same, same thing. You're ready. Ready to get good. Well, I'm I'm here and I'm eager. Uh, thank you, sir. May I have another? <laughs> um, so right before we get to the meat and potatoes of On the March and actually get to the things you guys came, came to hear us talk about, um, I'm going to continue playing this little game that we started last time with Juniper, and I'm going to ask Oni, uh, which chaos god do you think you'd be most likely to be tempted by? Mm. Mm. Which one could tempt you? Well, you know, it's kind of, it's a mix for me. Yeah. It's, it's a split between two for different reasons. Uh, I love corn. I sure. love, I love the melee. I'm a melee fiend. I've seen your fighting. I'm not surprised <laughs> at his temptation for you. Right. But I, but the, as much as I love the mindless berserker rage, it gets to me. It gets to me in a way that I don't care for a company, a group that wants to destroy anything so badly that it will destroy itself. That really bums me out. Yeah, and they absolutely will. I mean, I mean, the world eaters are fairly well organized, but uh, you know, a lot of times, corn they get to the end of battle and they're like, "Well, I, we're not done yet," so <laughs> just <laughs> lay into each other. Of course, uh, orcs do the same thing and. Uh, bless their little hearts that we love orcs. Yeah, truly. But uh, no, well, I can I can see Corrin's, uh appeal to you absolutely. Again, being a, especially the red fighter you are, I'm just mm. picturing you wielding this massive like chain glaive. Oh, thanks, dog. It's a yeah. beautiful image. It's oh, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. But you said you had mixed uh, mixed loyalties here. What other yes. of the chaos gods might tempt you? I like the Nurgle. Yeah. I, you know, and and I have a pro- I have a little problem with them. They're they're ugly as sin. They, I mean, yes, <laughs> but it comes with the territory. It I does. get it, and I'm okay with. I love the concept that they're all about strength, taking in all. You know, they're they turn full dark side. Yes, they go deeper and deeper into the tunnel, like farther and farther into the unknown, and I like that. Well, it's I, immortality. It, yeah, it's their form. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. And I just, man, I just wish they weren't all boomers. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, not all of them are. You've also got the, like, rake-thin, uh, like, corpse walkers oh, and that yes. sort of thing. And uh, not, I mean, some of them are, are, are blessed with the gift of blotation, is what they call it. But, <laughs> but other ones are, are wasted away, and they get other blessings as well. And that's, and that's the way they see it. Again, like we may see a lot of the, the diseases that they're afflicted with and say, oh, they're suffering from that. But one of the things that Nurgle offers is a freedom from that suffering. You no longer suffer from boils and lesions and madness or blotation or anything like that. Those things become boons. Lutation, that's extra armor, you know? Yep. Those, those boils and lesions, that's weapons to be used against the opponent. Like, uh, uh, somebody from Nurgle has a completely different perspective when it comes to this, which is part of the reason they're so alien to somebody who might come from the Imperium and they're talking to somebody 
um, trying to be tempted to Nurgle, and they're like, whoa, uh, you're oozing, dog. Like, <laughs> why would I want what you've got? But that's, that's part of the draw to it, that yeah. they... They choose that regardless of all things. That that's they want that strength. You know they want that. Some are forced into that's, it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know the the origin like the Death Guard didn't exactly go to Nurgle and be like, you know what? I think we want to do this. Well, some of them did. Like I, I I'm getting the feeling that like Typhus uh, Typhon at the time uh, went and uh, started accepting the gifts, accepted the mark far before Mortarian did, but. Um, what actually made Mortarian sacrifice his legion basically to Nurgle was that they were afflicted before reaching Terra by this mm. terrible plague and they couldn't get out of the warp and mm. the only way to make it stop was to submit to Nurgle and I, I haven't gotten to this part in the book I hope I'm not spoiling the buried dagger for anybody but this is also on the Wikipedia so you know you, you know how <laughs> it happens you just don't know the deets still read the book I am um, but yeah so they were just kind of, they were kind of coerced into it because of this mm. um, but there's others who, who come to it because of that they come to it because of the blessings that it offers or because they're already sick and dying and Nurgle says I can free you from this you'll be immortal and live like this forever but you won't suffer anymore it's cool. It's so, so cool. So is it just the two, or do you have any others that tempt you as well? Uh, well, I like the others, but, you know, I just, I'm not as tempted by the magic as much. I love it, but I, 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 I lose so much melee when I go that route. And I really wish, like, Corn had some psychers and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, Corn don't have no psychers. No, and that's a dang shame. But Nurgle does. <laughs> exactly. That's I wish. Uh, you know, I'm not versed enough, but I love the... There the is they, a concept of chaos undivided, but for the purposes exactly. of this game, we want you to make a decision. Well, that's why I'm going to take the cheater answer. Okay. That's, that's it. That's what I want. I want... A crossbreed. If there's a if there's a character that I think could unite the two, it's Nightmare, and that's what I imagine. Like no, Nightmare from Soul Calibur. Correct, nightmare? sir. Oh, okay. Right. Still, the undriving madness, the constant corruption that destroys the body yet makes it stronger and stronger, but still rooted in something in and, a and way. An all-consuming rage as well. Truly, thirst for that. souls. All right, all right, we'll accept that. <laughs> Panel of judges, yes, yes. Okay, we'll accept that. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you for the <laughs> for accepting my humble, <laughs> uneducated decision. Uh. All right. Well, what do you say we get into on the march? Mm. I'm ready. All right, I'm ready as well. So, we're going to be starting with a section that honestly looked like observations around the campfire or this could also be observations in the registration lobby um or or any other place that like teams congregate and uh, gather (laughs) talk um because sun Tzu actually proves himself to be an astute um oh my god I'm, i'm missing the word Astute um, observer, uh, obs- observationist, ob- observer of the, observer. Of the human condition, observationist, uh, <laughs> observationist. <laughs> it's a new profession, the observationist. Mm. 
but he he um, proves himself to be a, a astute uh, observer of the human condition when he was talking about this in the chapter. Um, and the way that you observe the enemy troops. So this is assuming in real life that you've got spies in position to be able to observe troops in their camp at leisure. Um, this isn't so hard in, in a game like Belagarth, or I'm sure a game like the SCA or Amp Guard or Dagger here, because we travel from camp to camp. Mm. Uh, I end up in Urukai camp, in, in Gelf camp, in EBF camp, in BOF camp, in Blackwater camp, in Godswap <laughs> camp. Like you, 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 there's a whole circle that everybody does. It works. Usually the one person you're looking for is doing the exact same circle, but at the <sighs> 180 degree angle. So you're just like following each other all night. You find out the next day and they're like, no, I went to those places too. Oh, right after I did. No. Nightmarish and real curse. So if you're having trouble finding somebody, just go the other direction. You might find them. But, um, so in this, in this section, he's talking about sometimes, some, some, some of it has to do with negotiations with diplomats who might come to you with offers of truces, alliances, working together. Um, and some of it has to do with, again, this observation of people at ease in their camps. Uh, and this first thing that he talks about, um, if somebody comes to you with offers of truce, but they don't have any solid commitments to offer you, that often indicates a plot. They're, they're trying to lull you into a false sense of complacency uh, for some other thing that they're maneuvering. Yeah, trying to soften you in some way, open a hole. Mm-hmm. If you fall prey to that, for say, uh, you know, per se, I should say, how many times can you say, say, and... I'm 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 waiting I'm waiting to find out. <laughs> <laughs> but if you if you go for that blindly, it causes the effect of it's it's an in effect a feint. Yes. It yeah. Gives a desired stance to your opponent mm-hmm. if they fall for such a thing. True. 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 Um, no, and I've definitely watched it occur as well, where a, 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 maybe a unit that is decently large, but not large enough to necessarily take on the whole field, will create buffer units. And these buffer units are all units that they have individually said, hey, let's not attack each other until the end to these units, but they haven't told the other units that they've talked to that they've talked to anybody else. Right. Yep. So you get so first, all these units are killing the units that you haven't made any deals with, either because they don't want to deal with you or you just don't have the connections to make that kind of deal. And then come the end, those units, all thinking that they're honoring their deal with you, attack each other, and, and then you just it. have the last one to fight. Easy. While you're taking a nice breather. But there's no commitment offered there. You're like, if you're saying we'll just attack each other at the end, what is the commitment to help? You're not saying, oh, I'm going to come to your aid if anything happens before then. You're saying, well, if something happens to you, well, say la vie, you died. You're a smaller <laughs> unit or you're a lesser known unit. You should just be honored to work with me sort of thing. Um, but That's no, like, it, again, it, watch for this. Watch for uh, Greeks and horses and something well, like that. A little too real. <laughs> So yeah, I, I've seen this one there too. It, it's a little bit less applicable for the Warhammer idea because... Um, I don't see a whole lot of free-for-alls in a tournament setting. It's usually two players, 1v1. Um, and and I, I guess I don't know enough about the actual community to see if this would be applicable. But in other wargaming things, it is. Any place where you've got team-based things, uh, these these ideas can, can come to bear. 
uh, League of Legends, I think this would, this would be something you could talk about in concerns with that, maybe. Mm. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess in Warhammer, yeah, what if someone was to, like, was to be friendly with you, and you know you guys are playing in a tournament setting... Is it plausible? I mean, I knew I know a couple people that are like this, that are like, hey, I'm going to play this army. You should play this army so that it's a really good fight. And let's, like, test ourselves in such a manner. And you're like, okay, sure, totally. Because, you know, I don't like, you know, like, if they use this army, I'm going to have a hard time with this army or this, you know, I could try to get by with this setup. Okay, this sounds great, sure. And then they, like, they're like, I forgot my other army. Or, like, <laughs> you know, I'm just not going to play with that. And you don't even bring yours. And you're like, oh. Like, it, I mean, that could be an equivalent style betrayal. Yeah. 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 And, and so, again, this is just to say that um, in any time of war, even, even false war, politics are absolutely a thing. For the longest time, and I've known friends who I've lost because they didn't care for the quote-unquote politics of Belagarth. And here's one thing I'm going to tell you that's the truth. Any human institution has politics. Two, yep. the politics of Belagarth are so true to medieval form, they're probably the most accurate thing about our LARP, honestly. Because, I mean, if you look back, one of the things that I've been learning more and more as I've been trying to get more details about the battles that we do for the show is just how much courtly intrigue plays in these wars. <laughs> It's unreal. It's it, it's huge. Like and, and so these little comings and goings, these these seemingly insignificant acts and words that take place in these high elite places, they actually mean something. Uh, these observations can uh, again dictate the the course of the battle in the battlefield. Like I've seen, um, where where you'll have two units that are working decently together. I'm not going to name names but I've definitely seen where, where two units have been used to working together and they've got two members, one in each in each unit, who are involved romantically. And then something happens between those two people and perhaps <gasps> it gets ugly. Those two units are now diametrically opposed to one another. And that doesn't just change the dynamic for those two units, it changes the dynamic for the entire field. It's nightmarishly real. So oh. to know these things is to be able to predict what's going on. I'm not saying being a gossip monger. I'm just saying keep your ears open. Observe what's going on. And again, if somebody does not have any real commitment, don't believe any offers of truce, or at least don't don't like really sell into it. Uh, the, the next thing he talks about has to deal with the leadership, and it says that officers, if you find them to be irritable, that they are, the, the exhaustion is setting in. And that exhaustion can either be physical exhaustion, just from being on the field too long, or it can also be uh, mental exhaustion from drama within the unit. Uh, that can be very taxing on a unit leader because uh, it's strange. Most unit leaders are elected with the idea that they're going to be a tactical leader, right? Mm -hmm. But 90% of their job is managing the interpersonal BS of, <laughs> <laughs> of the unit. I'm sure Thumbs could back me up on this. Oh. He's, he's been a leader a couple of times. It's very real. I mean, that's, that's very real in a lot of leadership positions. It requires you to have this kind of experience and this kind of mind mm -hmm. to do basic checks. Make sure this doesn't happen. Make sure this happens. Make sure this goes the right way. Right. But then everything surrounding that, within that, is all about 
extra stuff is all about the mindset, what's going on with the enemy, like what's all the minutia that plays into those strategies, that affects those strategies. And if you're not paying attention to it, not paying attention to your men, not paying attention to their men, it's an edge lost. It's information, it's a... They're, they're, Sometimes winning a battle comes down to HR. Truly. Thank you. <laughs> Nobody likes the <laughs> HR department, and yet uh, they're the ones who help mitigate all the circumstances. So you can see this in a couple of ways, though. Officers, and I'm using officers to mean influential people within realms or units, um, they will start putting, doling out rewards arbitrarily. Um, for seemingly no, no reason, there's no, there's no structure to it. And also punishments might seem cruel, uh, disproportionate, or also random at the same time. There doesn't seem to be any order to it. And this all indicates that there is a disruption at the leadership level. And if there is a disruption at the leadership level, that is one thing that trickles down. Well, we try not to get political on this show, but that, that is one thing that trickles down. Oh, um, huge. You can just talk about work. When the manager is no good, oh yeah, there's problems. Yes, because they, they pass that on to everybody else, everybody else that they deal with. So, uh, so yeah, that that's a huge indicator. If you're sitting there around the campfire uh, or or going to pub night and you're noticing that the officers of a particular unit are behaving in this exhausted way, or or doling out punishments and rewards seemingly at random or for no reason. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's an indication that that unit or realm might be suffering somewhat. That affects the performance on the field of battle. Um, the next thing he says is, is extremely similar, but it's the lower echelon. It says uh, clusters of folk whispering together indicates dissatisfaction. And this this is not, you know, people who've gone off to the side to discuss where they're going to go next to party or whatever like that. But I've I've entered camps where everybody's sitting at least near the fire, and there's this openness to the atmosphere. The whole thing is, is open and inviting. Everybody is kind of chatting amongst each other, even if they're kind of sitting in a group, they'll lean over and talk to their neighbors. Mm-hmm. Like there's this whole communal, nice atmosphere. Like every Dark Angels uh, camp that I've had the pleasure of going to has been like this, where everybody's just there and together, and you don't have this this dissatisfaction that's just palpable. But then there's other camps, and I don't want to name names, but that I've gone into, and you can just kind of feel it because everybody is clustered in these little groups, and they're not speaking very loudly. There's nothing really communal going on. And every time you approach a group, they kind of get quiet Mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps don't want you to hear what they're talking about. This is a bad sign. This is a very bad sign to see in somebody's camp. It's... uh... I'm going to use one of my standard catchphrases. Too real. It's, Too real. <laughs> it's terribly, you know, disheartening. And it's very it's very easy to see. It's like, it's so... Once you understand, like, that those things are happening and those social connections, like, mean something, when these groups... That means it shows their distrust even for each other. Right. And when you walk in and you feel that and you see that and you walk up to groups and they kind of shudder as you say and are like, oh, hey, hey, and everybody just stops talking about what they're saying and they immediately address you either to pull you in to the dis- dissatisfaction or right. to push you away from it. Or to try to act like nothing's going on. You've definitely <sighs> seen that too or somebody suddenly they're just like forcing strange conversation 
And it's like, this has nothing to do with what you were just talking about, and you're just like trying to basically throw people off the scent as to what you're saying. Any, any of this, again, these are all these all can be bad signs that a unit or a realm could be in trouble. Thank you <clears throat> for the perfect option C. There's always a third option. Always. At least. Speaking of uh, third options, uh, that was the third option. We're moving on to the fourth option <laughs> for this particular section. Um, on the opposite side of people coming and offering nothing um, and not, not really trusting that, if people come with really soft, conciliatory words, and by conciliatory words I mean that they're willing to negotiate, they're willing to concede, that means that they are keen on a truce, and that's something that absolutely should be grabbed upon. Well, like we were saying earlier, a, a true concession would be if you are in danger on the field, we will come to your aid and you will come to ours. Uh, that sort of thing is an actual concession, uh, an agreement to action, and not just, oh, non-aggression till the end, because again, if you see that all over the place, you've got dishonesty. But if you've done that, and you've made a truce that says, I'll come to your aid, people are going to find you out very quickly because you're going to be like, why are you attacking me? Because I'm attacking this other person. You just killed them both, and that's really confusing, and blood for the blood god. Am I right? Truly. <laughs> um, but nobody's really going to want to work with you after that, and so for this to be worthwhile, the, the truces have to also be gen- genuine and consistent because word gets around if somebody is, uh, is dishonest. Um, yeah, so you want you want people to be able to take you at your word. At least I want people to be able to take me at my word. That's uh, an important thing for me. I play by that rule as well. It's just not... <sighs> you just besmirch your fighting character so hard when you make those kinds of deals and turn on people. It does not make friends. No. Yeah, and, and it can make grudges. And grudges are a dangerous thing in a community that is... I mean, it's it's an international community. I know I've said before that it's all across the United States, but I failed to mention that we actually have a couple of realms in Puerto Rico, uh, Germany, Canada. Um, Yeah, we're all over the place. And and so even though we have people in all these places, it's still a small community. You still only have a certain number of people who are movers and shakers because the vast majority of people are just there to have a good time. They're just there to enjoy Wacky Bats with their friends. Uh, some of them may listen to this show, in which case I don't judge you. Um, I'm one of you for from, from, from most of the time. Uh, I, I uh, only get involved in politics when absolutely necessary. But uh, if you mess over somebody in one section of the community, people talk. And maybe later, later in life, when you're wanting to do something or, or you're wanting to... Uh, Go press forward with some initiative within the community, you might find resistance because you don't have a good rep. And it doesn't go unnoticed. It doesn't. It, it really doesn't. So, uh, these are things to consider in this case as well. Honestly, a little bit of subterfuge isn't bad, but also don't be dishonest. There's ways to engage in subterfuge without being dishonest. Um, but yeah, and, and so the rest of this portion of Sun Tzu's chapter, he spends talking a lot about how to judge the discipline of a unit and how that discipline relates to uh, their performance on the battlefield. And this is a a part that I honestly take issue with, at least when it comes to something like Belagarth, 
because there are units that I've seen that are highly disciplined, like you would see in a military sense. Um, you know, they, they get up, they have people who might even be considered drill sergeants. They run drills together as a unit. Um, they're highly organized. There's meetings that are compulsory. Like it, it almost seems mm-hmm. like an entirely different job, and, but that's the way, the way that they choose to win things. And those units might perform very well, but <clears throat> counter to that, I wish I could say that like high discipline and I mean, I'm, I, I was in the army. I know what that lifestyle is like. And I, and I definitely digged it when I was a part of it. Digged it, dug it, dug it, dig it, dug yeah. it. Um, dug it indeed. <laughs> dug it indeed. But I've also seen units that do not operate on that principle at all. It it almost seems like pure chaos to have been anybody from the outside. It almost looks like the unit is about to implode, at least from a discipline standpoint. And then you go and watch them in uh, tournaments. And then you see them form up on the field for battle, even though you're sitting there and you swear because of the wizard staff they were wielding the night before that they should (laughs) not be walking right now. They are still miraculously there and slaying on the field. I might be talking about God Squad. Um, Wizards. <laughs> and it just impresses it. me. It impresses me because that, that extreme opposite paradigm also exists and also works exceptionally well, you know? And so looking at these two things, I think you just need to have people who are on the same page. If you've got people who are into partying and who don't necessarily want to have schedules and practice together, then you also need people who practice on their own. Every God Squad member I've talked to uh, says that they have a home practice regimen they engage in. Some sort of pell work or exercise or forums or YouTube watching or something like that that helps them keep their practice up. Even just sparring constantly. Like, so they're, it's not that they're not practicing. It's not that they're not drilling. They just do so on an individual level. Other units make it a community activity. And so it, it really comes down to who is in the unit and how is that unit going to function well together. Because if you have some undisciplined people who are not going to push themselves, who are not going to try to better themselves in their off time, then you're just kind of hanging out. Because yep. then there's no time to improve. But... The improvement needs to come from somewhere. And so I, I guess what I'm saying is that I, I kind of disagree with Sun Tzu in this sense because there are highly effective units that would have, from the outside point of view, no overarching theme of discipline, you know? But that just speaks to its existence in the first place. It wouldn't exist if it didn't work in some capacity. And that is, I agree with you 100%. I think that's... a the conflict of style like right. that's just not it, it rubbed his fur the wrong way well because i know that like um for instance god squad since we're, we're talking about you cool guys right now anyways i know that a lot of members of god squad would not do well in some of the other more like highly disciplined units that i know of just because it's just not their personalities yeah they would not click with the, the strictures of that kind of life and vice versa there's some people in some highly disciplined units that would not do well in a place that didn't have that kind of structure Hundred percent. So it's nice that those difference the dif- the different units exist for different types of people. And so when we're saying on this show, like I say sometimes that the dark angels are kind of typecast. I don't mean to say that we're all the same body type. We all think the same way about politics. We all agree about everything all the time. I'm just saying that when you're when you're looking on the field at somebody, there's a certain way that we want a dark angel to move because we don't we don't get together and do mass drills for the most part. Like sometimes we do. It'll be like a fun. Uh, communal activity right after morning yoga and you know 
group church and that sort of thing. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's not a strict thing. It's not you know every single Saturday of this event we're always doing this. So uh, and the reason that can work is because we select people who are already working on their own. We are, we select people who are individual, maybe self starters would be the the business term for it. Um, and yeah, so that's that's how maybe a more disorganized comp, uh, organization uh, can function. In hundred percent, <laughs> following that that same theme of uh, reorganizing this naturally, I think the next step, which is what we've already been talking about, is observations on the field. Oh, of like the behaviors of units and teams on the field. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's a good idea. Um, so yeah, the, these same observations, Sun Tzu offers the same idea. And again, uh, a lot of this section is spent with him talking about the the actual organization of the unit, the way their drums and banners are arrayed and where their officers are moving. And, and some units, a lot of units that are decentralized, again, Dark Angels, God Squad, um, I think Blackwater, um, mm come to mind very strongly for for a decentralized unit one that like doesn't have like a designated chain of command that is always obeyed on the on the field of battle um they wouldn't match what Sun Tzu is saying here again they're effective they get things done and they're in their own way but that particular section doesn't apply I don't think so but the things that do apply um if uh, another unit or another team gets close to you but avoids attacking you they are confident in their position, is basically the idea. They, they believe that their position is unassailable, and that if they kind of stay there, you're going to come to them, and that they are going to win. Mm. It's, almost, it's almost a bait. It is. There's, yeah, there's definitely a posturing. And there's another one uh, later on that actually is a bait, and that's, uh, but these are guys who are getting, again, they're close Mm. but they're they're not necessarily attacking. They want you to initiate, because again, they're confident that they can win, um, but they don't want to necessarily come to you. Such as within view, mm-hmm. or the most logical marching path, right. you know, within, or directly in the way of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it uh, absolutely is a huge thing, especially on the battlefield, if you see... Uh, powerful force standing there in front of you at just lining up in front of you and then just marches forward and plants like you know what they're thinking yep they're thinking you will break upon me or even <laughs> even just a, a fighter that's standing between you and the objective think a, a ring the bell mm. um where and this is a game type i know we don't necessarily explain a lot of this stuff as well as we should because kaji and I, or uh, oni and i have been doing this for a long time as and a classic slip up. Yeah. Season one slip up. He <laughs> <laughs> was even on the show, which uh, makes it hard. No, we, that's why. That's why. We're, we, bro- we're brothers in arms for yeah. sure. Often, often um, misnamed. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, when I first met you guys, you were together so often that I literally had trouble remembering which one was which. That was, and the problem was that was our goal. <laughs> well, it worked. It definitely it did. worked. <laughs> Um, but we've been doing this a while. And so some things that we're talking about might, they might make sense to people who are very experienced, but to somebody who doesn't necessarily know the lingo or, or hasn't been around as long, it, it, it might not be common knowledge. So I think mm. it's good for us to, you know, explain sometimes yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Good call. Good move. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. 
So, Ring the Bell is a game type where you, you've got two teams, and you either can have ongoing or it end when the bell is rung, but each team has a bell, quote-unquote bell, that is a shield that is placed on their side of the field, and the objective is to go over and hit the other person's bell, ring the bell, as it were. Ding. So, um, what, what I'm saying here is that if somebody is standing directly in front of you, they plant, and again, immediately right, right in front, that is an indicator that uh, they are confident in their position and they want you to approach. Along this same vein of thought, if they are, are further away, but they are taunting you in some way, they're, they're trying to bait, they're sending people out to like come and, and try you and then like fall back to that position, that is an obvious bait. That is a lure. They're trying to get you into position so that they can do something else. And, and actually, both of these things I've honestly seen in 40K as well. Um, you have this unit that like comes chomping up right in front of you, and they plant. Again, they want you to assault them there. They're there for a reason. Um, it's, it's not by coincidence. Um, most of the time. Sometimes people make mistakes. But it's, it's never to your benefit to assume that somebody is, is, is making a mistake. You should mm. always assume that it's intentional. At least that's what chess taught me. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if anything, the preparation for a negative side effect will have you more ready rather than if you don't pay heed, mm-hmm. the consequences are f- far often more dire. And then, if again, in the same way, if you've got your units arrayed in the back and they're far off, but they're they're issuing this challenge, they're like throwing out those shots and like not necessarily coming towards you, they want you to come towards them. Um, it, it's part of a larger plan to perhaps encircle or um, or hit you with a secondary attack of some sort. Um, and then progressing uh, from that same idea, if they if they foam up post from you. Again, we're, we're talking close, but they're really loud. Be aware of a trap. I, I And this is one that I have absolutely seen on the Belfield. Uh, you come to mind. <laughs> Angus comes mm. to mind for people who are excellent distractions, who can just run up into somebody's face and, and be making all sorts of noise, and suddenly the flanker hits. Yeah. Or even somebody from just, like, another angle. Just that level of loudness. Be, be ready for it. That's... Oh, 100. 100. 100. And, and it's, it's interesting that Sun Tzu even takes the time to address this. He addresses this specifically. Because, uh, uh, again, even in... I started in the SCA. I was only a part of the SCA for, like, a brief second. I went to the local realm here, Sentinel's Keep. And uh, I had my bell rung once and determined that I did not want to do anything that hard anymore. <laughs> that it will break you down. It, uh, it was loud. Um, I was wearing a helmet, and, uh, but it was hit with rattan, and it was, it was loud, and it, it impacted it. Like, I'm like, you guys do this. Okay. Um, but I did go to an event. Um, uh, to a, one of, It was called, um, oh, what was it? Griffin's Fury or something like that? It escapes me now. Um, I can't even try to help on this. But it was it was a, a, a clash between the unit, or the group here, and a Canadian group. Um, and walking on the battlefield afterwards, it was carnage. 
I mean, it was like I, I was I had elected to be a water boy, and so like, but walking on that battlefield afterwards, it was just strewn with men who were in these these armor, and they were like they had their helmets off because it was really hot. And they're like crying out for water, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so hardcore. But uh, all all of that aside, they would really really use this tactic where they would get in each other's faces and get super loud while they had guys that were really pushing the sides, like it was, and with all that armor on. To get loud, they had to get real loud. So, yeah, it works. It absolutely works. Not to uh, give away my totally obvious trade secrets, but I absolutely have a super loud voice, and uh, I've had to learn to control that. But in these situations, I learned to control it in a different way, and it is an incredible factor. I've literally watch people die because of because of a battle cry right and that is not an exaggeration it sounds like a far-fetched tale <laughs> but <laughs> when you roll up against a group of four people that have not learned to not flinch yet a, a giant eight-foot red user that is keyopping in your face so loud that it is like a shock bang you're done it's crazy how hard people will tense up and that's even if that's a metaphor like that brings such a presence to an area that it forces people to pay attention oh yeah I mean, again like a loud noise nearby unless people are, are very disciplined it will i mean even then they're gonna have a modicum of like what was that like it, it's it's great it's a, it's a great, not just distraction, but also it puts people off guard, like you said. Um, I've definitely seen people, like, soften their stance or, like, drop their stance because they're like, what? And then, boom, they're dead. Spearmen. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, it, it can absolutely be used as a weapon. So, next, after you've made your observations, move around the campfire, and now we've made our observations uh, about the field itself and the people who are forming up... Um, we're going to be talking about moving through, moving around the field. And Sun Tzu talks about four very real features in the book in the forms of mountains, rivers, salt marshes, and level ground. And of course, all of these can be taken literally as well. But what we're going to kind of focus on is the metaphoric meaning of these particular uh, geographic features as they are in most fields. Because most fields don't have actual salt marshes, or at least we try to avoid that. And we're not actually playing in real rivers. But again, metaphorically, I honestly think that these apply. So uh, a mountain is obviously any sort of raised area, but it can also be any fortified area, like whether with hay bales or um, even wooding, like wooded areas. Uh, These can be considered a quote-unquote mountain. Um, And he says that you need to pass by mountains. You stay in the valleys, or just say stay kind of like going between these mountains, um, and never join a battle on higher ground. <clears throat> this is absolutely true. Attacking uphill, not a great idea. That same SCA tournament that I was at, I watched a lone man run up the hill toward the Canadian shield line. And he was so peppered by javelins. Like, I, I, I think the force of them actually drove him backwards. Like, it was one of those things where he was sprinting forward full tilt, and then he went backwards from all these javelins hitting him. Ouch. It was beautiful. That's a lot of physics going it was, on. It was. A lot of uh, force and mass. 
perhaps momentum was involved. Yeah, not only momentum, but the complete stopping and reversal of... Yeah, yeah, when two forces collide, and one of them is a wall of javelins. Um, so, so a mountain... Uh, it, is also, it can be absolutely higher ground, but again, it can also be a very well-entrenched unit, a unit that has a very good shield wall that would be mm. difficult to break. That could also be considered a mountain. Don't try to climb that. Don't try to climb that. Uh, at least not until the end. And we're talking about unit battles or multi-team fights where you've got a lot of people moving around and a lot of things to consider. So this is what we're talking about by a mountain. If it's just two teams, they're a little bit different to talk about. As well as the edge of the world. Yes, uh, yeah, that was the other analogy that I definitely, uh, we definitely wanted to draw was the idea that the mountains are the edge of the world, and you should never necessarily be right up against them. Um, stick to the valleys. It's not a bad idea to be near the mountain, but just not right up against the mountain in this particular way. Uh, the next thing he talks about is the river, and again, on most battlefields, you're not going to have an actual river. Sometimes there might be a, a river that is. Uh, kind of like RP'd or something like that. Mm. But the river we're talking about is just the metaphoric space between units. Just, if, especially if you're talking about two powerful units or even like the center of the field where all these units are looking, the river can be considered this because of the way that these analogies work. Because Sun Tzu says that you should cross the river and move away from it very quickly. Don't tarry in the river. And if uh, your enemy is coming across the river, do not meet them midstream, which is to say if they're coming across the open area, don't go into the open area to meet them, but wait until half of them have fully crossed and then plow into them. Because, in, I mean, in this particular case, the ones who are not across the river at that point, a, a lot of unit battles, if another unit smells blood, they're going to come in. And who are they going to go against? The team that has had their back against the, the mountains? And is attacking the team midstream, or the team that is midstream, which is the easier pickings? Oh, definitely the one that is harder to get to and fortified and whooping the other team. They're, they're going to go for them, right? I sense sarcasm, um, <laughs> and yes. <laughs> but yeah, so, so this is the idea of rivers. And, I, and, and I, I like this analogy so much. I teach this one all the time to our students and it, it heartens me because often and they, they've taught it to others now I hear like generations of them who haven't been through the officers academy yet yelling at somebody else hey dude get out of the river and it's, it's beautiful because what they're saying is hey get out of the middle get, get, get to safety um, and not in that transitory place um, between places in the in the unit battle it's so real to see on a big two-sided line. You can watch it organically move, and it's, it is so applicable to line fighting. When you see a fighter step out into that gap and try to not push through with cohorts as a line, but to try to, to cross the river and fight his way across the other side, it is a death wish. Oh, yeah. It yeah. will get you killed. The whole point is that you break through. Yes. You go all the way across. As you said, do not stop. There's no reason to try to get into a tussle in the river nope. because you're going to get hit by everyone around. And exactly that on the opposite end. If you're getting pushed and they make a line push, hold your ground and drop them there. 
drop them at the edge of the river, wait until half of them, as said, a huge majority of them, is crashing and dying against your line, and then push. Mm -hmm. And don't hang out. Crush it. Boom. Push through exactly in the same manner. Break it down and get across to the other side. That's right. Yeah, and so, again, don't linger there, but use it to your advantage when you're being attacked from there. Um, Because it's risky. It's risky to mount an attack from the river. Um, So, yeah, that's that's the analogy that we use for that one. The next one is a salt marsh. And, And for this analogy, imagine an area where there is intermittent, disorganized, and sparse fighting. And to get bogged down there, tracking down the various people who might may uh, be engaged in combat and trying to defeat them, is literally just going to do that. It's going to bog you down and keep you from being able to maneuver on other elements that might be using you being in the salt marsh as a reason to attack. I am very, very guilty of this one. Of lingering in the salt marsh? Yes. Yes. <laughs> as a Leg them sp- and leave them over. <sighs> Just hack those reeds and move through. Oh, I know. Oh, man. Oh, I get so bad. I'm so bad. That's my... It's just the worst. I see people out there skirmishing. I'm support. I'm DPS. I, like, want to save my teammate, and I want to wreck the other one. And I so easily, just as my meta type and it just pulls me in every time I'm like I gotta, sorry guys gotta go save my friend <laughs> and then you get stuck in the salt marsh as well or, or I get left behind yeah you know you and all of a sudden my line my unit that I'm fighting with is 60 feet off in a full battle and first of all I'm not there right I'm way at a higher chance of getting mowed upon behind or from the side and my teammate doesn't have my whole team doesn't have me now right 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 right. and i'm missing the main battle yep so yeah these these smaller little battles even if even if it's uh one of your teammates like oni's saying or if it's like two other teams that are kind of engaging sparsely and again i'm not talking about a dedicated line hit i'm talking about these little tiny fights that aren't worth necessarily mopping up when there's larger players that are at work Truly. is kind of the idea um, so yeah do not do not get bogged down in the salt marsh cross it quickly and do not linger um, and then level ground uh, he talks about the best place to be when you're, because the field itself might be able to be considered level ground um, or at least most cases we try to make the field as level as possible I've been on some fields where there's like hills and stuff and they're pretty cool but uh, for the most part there's a lot of level ground when you're forming up, it is best to keep the quote-unquote mountains, air quote mountains, to the, your back and to your right. Now, when I first read this, and, and, and Sun Tzu said this, he says it's the, for the best defense of your men, and it, it enables you to be able to move out with the best um, cover, basically. And I'm sitting there thinking about it, and I'm like, that makes no sense. You're wide open if you line up that way, because I am a left-handed person. And if I were to line up that way, my whole left side is exposed to the rest of the field, and I feel very in the open. But as most fighters, and especially fighters who are trained for these armies, were right-handed, uh, that was a totally different ballgame, because the shield is on that left-hand side. So you've got really good defense toward the rest of the field. So this is something to consider. If you And now, 
I, I don't want every field, every every team in Belagarth now fighting over the extreme right hand corner <laughs> <laughs> of every match. But if you can maneuver it, uh, it, it's apparently a good thing for y'all right handed fighters. And even on the micro chasm, ooh, that sounds like a totally made up combination of words. No, microcosm's a real word. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll take a tenth of percent credit for that one. Uh, fighting with a shieldman, fighting with a mobile mountain, you absolutely want to be on their mountainside. You want to be fighting on the shield side. If you're fighting with a left-hander, you want to be on their right side. Yep. They are they're protecting your flank. And if you're fighting with a righty, same thing. You want them on your right, and that's what he's talking about. You want the mountains to your right and behind you. And, you know, I don't necessarily want a shieldman behind me, but I sure do if they're going to watch my back. That's right. Yes. Yeah, and so that's the whole idea with what he said here. Uh, and so the idea is just to line up and, and to make sure that when you're moving, you're doing so in the best defensive way possible. You're trying to keep whatever side of your army, if you're moving as one group, that is defensive toward uh, the enemy soldiers so that you, you remain protected. I notice that most toilet bowls, as we call it, and this is some, again, I, mm. another term that I need to explain, toilet bowl of death is when one unit moves against another unit who starts backing away into another unit who starts backing into another unit who starts backing into another unit and then everybody's moving in the same direction and it just toilet bowls. Uh, oh. you can imagine that. Oh, oh, it's so real. Yeah. Everyone is so afraid of each other. <laughs> but do you notice that it usually goes counterclockwise? Yep. Yep. Because everybody is moving away and keeping their shields to the team that is advancing to their left. Yep. And throwing their offense out. Yep. Which, again, makes no sense to me as a lefty. I'm like, why are we going this way? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Which is nice, because I like people that stop the flush. I'm. It drives me mad. I want to fight someone. I do not want to fight someone that is running away from me. <laughs> kills I, I didn't me. come here to walk in circles. No. That's that's not what I uh, traveled. However many hours uh. that we had to get out of Montana to to, to walk in circles. <laughs> so yeah, um, so that's moving through. That's that's a little bit of advice just for thinking of the field in a bit more of a dynamic fashion, and and really concentrating on making sure that you minimize your time in threat areas, and and maximize the time that you keep your opponent in those threat areas. Yeah. So, this Whoa. battle, super surprise battle, unless you've got something else to add on that real quick. Yeah. I'll just say it now. I'll leave it as a as a anecdote for right. later. If okay. people are interested, they can comment, whatever. That is a parallel to the zone of sanctity that I have never thought about before. Zone of sanctity? Yes. And then I'll, I will... Now, you got me curious now. We'll hold off on the battle. you you got to explain this now. Okay. Zone eight, of sanctity. It's zone of sanctity. Eight-way movement. Okay. Forward, back, left, right, and each diagonal. Sure. For a right-handed fighter, it is the exact directions of the mountain. It is reverse right. Right. It is the polar opposite direction of their weapon hand. Sure. If they're left-handed, you move away from the, from the opposite. Right. Ooh. As I move farther away from the target. So quiet, quiet, quiet. 
But that's as a red fighter, for example, or a polearm fighter, you always want to backstep away from their weapon, boom, boom, while attacking. Right. Maximizes your chance for successful damage yep. and minimizes your threat. Same direction. Never yep. thought about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Zone sanctity. Learned a new, new term today. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to preface this this uh, this battle for you all. The reason we're keeping it a secret is because every year that we have done Gladiators, the battles that we've done at the end of these uh, shows are very similar to the way we've done the class. Because we do the class and we, we teach, we go through the, the passages of the book, kind of explain how they apply to Warhammer or to uh, Belagarth. And then when we get to the end, we've thought of a battle that we put them into a scenario and we don't necessarily tell them anything about it because we don't want them to know the right, right way to get out of it. If I tell them, okay, you're doing uh, the Battle of Adrianople, then maybe one of them might get on his phone, because that's what kids can do, and be like, <laughs> okay, how did such and such general win the Battle of Adrianople? Okay, we do this, and I don't, I don't want any of that happening. So we obscure the names, we obscure the location, we just give them the bare facts that they need to kind of understand the situation occurring in the battle and in this particular and, and a lot of times they win especially as the year goes on they start getting closer and closer and then actually maybe winning some of these battles because they're t- thinking more tactically it's awesome to see but I have never had a class pass the, the battle that we're about to present to you not once not once it is the Kobayashi Maru of the uh, <laughs> of the gladiator <laughs> program so to speak so the setting there is an empire. Let's say it's an empire of orcs that is spreading into this, this area of plains that has been long occupied by elves. Now, these elves have, have lived in, in different groups, in different family groups, but uh, this area has been largely theirs for hundreds of years. They've, they've, they have been unchallenged. They have been unfettered by any law. But the discovery of resources valuable to the orcs have brought them in pursuit of this territory. Now, the orcs have shown that they, God, they, they have underestimated their foe. Uh, in an in initial encounter that was supposed to go exceptionally easy, the orcs were bested by these elves. Uh, what, what? But greenskins are best. Uh, I, that's, that's what the, this empire says, but apparently not. And they were bested, and, and the general was nearly destroyed. They were, so they were driven back. And so the, uh, a while later, these orcs decide that they're going to send in a better idea. They assemble a, a, a few more men, and we're talking uh, somewhere around the tune of like 2,000 troops to go into this area because the assumption is that these tribes, as they have long lived, are in disparate groups. They don't really move together. They, they move in small kind of war bands, and they're rarely, they, don't, they don't come together. They're not expecting to encounter any more than 800. It's a strong tactic. Keeps them safe, keeps them separated, hard to track down, hard to pin down. So the orcs aren't expecting much resistance. What they don't know is that these tribes of elves have banded together for their own protection and are operating in such a way they are tracking the orcs every movement. So the orcs move into this area between a very large river and a mountain range. Now, they decide that they're going to split up 
into several different groups. And the reason for this is that one is going to move a little bit closer to the mountain range, one is going to move closer to the river, and then once uh, one of the groups engages them, that's going to make them flee, and the other group will move in and pin them, and then that will be that. And, worst case scenario, they'll be ready for skirmish. Right. Which is has been the normal way that it's rolled up until this point. I mean, they, they're just, they're using their previous knowledge to their advantage, but they're letting their emotions of the previous defeat get to them. And they're not, and the orcs aren't researching their opponent. Remember that these orcs are coming through and they're just sort of assuming their superiority over these elves. They're, they're just assuming that they're going to beat them. Horde wins. Greenskins are best. That's, that's right, Horde wins. <laughs> we have nothing to learn from this. Um, and in particular, one of these orc commanders is a real loudmouth. He has made enemies among his fellow officers for his shameless self-promotion. Um, he was a hero uh, in, in, in a previous war against some, uh, some other treacherous orcs that betrayed the cause. He proved himself a massive hero. And so he came into this particular conflict expecting to be received and adored as the hero he was. He would often punish officers who did not think that he was as cool as he is. This is a very orc tactic. This shouldn't surprise anybody. And he's the orc that we're going to be talking about today. Because, honestly, he he was following orders in this particular case, but the elves had been watching him, and they had been learning from him. And they had seen that in previous engagements, he had sent in a loud and boisterous force to the front of a, of a elvish, elvish encampment. All of the elvish warriors would come out and engage that distraction force that at this point has be, had become very well embedded. And then this commander would ro- go around the flank into the elvish encampment, take all the women and children hostage, and demand that the braves lay down their weapons. So... He thought that this was a pretty clever plan, but the elves were wise to him. And so when he sent one of his lessers to do this distractionary force, um, now this is, of course, one of the lessers that had offended him. He hadn't particularly uh, lived up to the bootlicking expectations (laughs) that his his commander had. His skin was not so green. His skin was not so green. Um... And so he was sent in, but he was overwhelmed almost immediately by far more elves than they had even anticipated. So he fights his way back to the side of the river, and they keep coming, and he keeps fighting his way back to a hill, and he takes massive losses throughout this entire process. But as he was supposed to be there as the distractionary force, the greenest of green skins was moving around to the flank to do his traditional hostage snatch uh, maneuver. Foolproof plan. What he did not know was that the commanders of the elves were wise to him, and then they had a sizable force ready. The battlefield afterwards showed that they died running away from a far superior force. Um, yeah, it was absolutely devastating. And, and what, what happened here was that this particular commander committed the cardinal military sin. If there was to say, be to say one cardinal military sin, it is this. It is rushing in without knowing the numbers or the location of your opponent. Would you disagree, Oni? Oh, so how, how can I? How can you? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, so, has anybody guessed 
what this battle we might be referring to is. I'll give you a hint. It occurred in 1876. Anybody? Well, the next hint would be that it occurred in May of 1876 in the United States. The name of the battle was the Battle of the Greasy Grass, also known as Custer's Last Stand, also known as the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And everything I said there about the greenest of the greenskins was absolutely true. He was a shameless self-promoter. Um, he actually wrote about the tactic of running in and seizing women and children and making the, the, the brave surrender in his book about his life on the plains. Um, he had uh, upset the people around him. Uh, he was moving under orders. There's this assumption that he was in the area and completely off the handle, but he wasn't. This was just the plan that was assumed because there wasn't supposed to be uh, as many... Uh, Native Americans there as there were. Well, it was supposed to be 800, but conservative estimates place it anywhere between 2,500 and 6,000. So that, that again, you have basically the entirety of the Sioux Nation bearing down upon you there. And not only that, but they were being commanded by Crazy Horse and Gaul, two of the best commanders that the Sioux Nation had ever seen, and, and brilliant tactic- tacticians when it came to the wars that occurred on the plains. And I'm going to follow the uh, theme, <sighs> terrible, it's not a theme at all, but it happened once. <laughs> uh, I'm going to offer the third option uh, to further the mistake that was made. He not only attacked blindly in location and numbers of troops, he relied upon a negative moral compass mm-hmm. to defeat these enemies, and that brought them together to band against this, what was obviously a terrible force. Well, it was definitely part of it. I mean, the this this uh, uh, large uh, city, mobile city for the most part, that had come together were, were people who wanted to attend the Sundance, which they were forbidden from doing if they went to the reservation. And so they were resisting that and trying to stay together for safety. Again, it was it was not usual for them. They usually moved in far smaller groups, but that meant being picked off by the U.S. Cavalry. I had no idea that they were. it was a Sundance. Mm-hmm. That is incredible. That is a double whammy, especially because now not only are they like, oh, man, ooh, it's almost unintentional moral compass like fighting. If they didn't even mean to, yet they were brought together by a moral compass of oppression to begin with. Right. Which is why they were there. And then it came straight into their face, like straight in there. And they were, oh, dang, I... Well, this no particularly idea. was because gold had been found in the Black Hills. Mm, yep. And there had already been a lot of incidents between natives who said, hey, this is ours because of the treaties, and settlers saying, no, this is ours because we say so. Um, and so the U.S. Army had been called to, to solve the situation, of course, on the side of the settlers who were stealing land. Um, but yeah, yeah. And so that, that was that battle. And again, every time we phrased it, we get to the end of it, and we say, yeah, you... like Because each of the, the kids would be playing a certain general. One of them would be Reno. One of them would be Crazy Horse. One of them would be Custer. And so we'd say, hey, bud, you were playing Custer. And guess what? (laughs) Every time. Every time. So, yeah. 
that that and I think that's a a very good lesson from just about everything we've said before as well. Like never one of another one of Custer's big mistakes was he did the same thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And of course, somebody as smart as Crazy Horse is going to see that and say, "Hey, I bet he's going to pull the same stuff." And he did. And so they were able to redirect and and, and hit him hard. <laughs> Let him kidnap us. <laughs> <laughs> but again, these are the finest warriors in the Sioux Nation. And not just that, but they were newly outfitted. They had just gotten a bunch of new rifles um, from various raids and trades that they have done. And so it was not a force that they were expecting. And they didn't listen. Like, their Crow scouts reported. They were like, there's a huge settlement up ahead. You can't take it. And still Custer was like, I shall attack. Because mm. that was just green skins are best. Well, he he, wa- he wanted to re- renew his reputation. Like he felt like his reputation was sagging so much. Mm. He was no longer a civil war hero, which he was. Um, actually, he uh, there was a large sweeping maneuver that Jeb Stewart did during the uh, Battle of Gettysburg that Custer was instrumental instrumental in stopping. And if Jeb Stewart had managed to get between. Uh, the Army of the Potomac and Washington, that would have been a huge issue and would have caused the Federals to have to withdraw from their defensive positions to deal with it. So the fact that Custer did that earned him a lot of fame and respect. Now, everything else he did was absolutely deplorable, but... <laughs> it just goes to some people's heads. It does. It, it does. Fame goes to other people's heads. Um, so yeah, that's that's been our episode on the march uh we've we've been talking about observations you can make around camp uh, about your enemies or enemies or (laughs) nobody's the enemies in these communities but your opponents your opponents dispositions um observations that can be made on the field uh, then moving around the field and kind of how to think about that in terms of what is dangerous and what is not and then giving a decent example of everything not to do with the battle of the greasy grass um so yeah nailed um, it if you're liking what we're doing, if, if uh, you're enjoying this show and it's, it's bringing some, some joy to your life or some knowledge to your noggin, uh, please like us on, on Facebook, uh, or like us on whatever podcasting service you go to, um, and uh, review us. Uh, any of that stuff gets us more bumps, it gets us uh, more views, and, and can enable us to do more. Uh, we also have an Instagram account, Art of Wargaming Podcast. Um, is just the handle there, and you can you can see us there. I'm always trying to post pictures of battles and the armies and uh, some of the Stygian life that occurs around here. You can see uh, the various goings on around the studio, studio, my living room, room of recording. <laughs> um, you can find us on Facebook, uh, the Art of War Gaming. Um, we love getting messages. Uh, Please and, and uh, yeah, come so come check out what we're doing there. Uh, you can reach us at email if you like art of war gaming podcast at gmail.com um, send us uh, pictures of your larping gear or of your battle gear send us pictures of your armies um, uh, give us some reviews some creative feedback if you'd like to hear something else on the show we'd love to hear it um, next week we're going to be talking about terrain which is honestly one of my favorite chapters I say that every time I got it <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. It is one of my favorite. Ch- I do love it. Uh, it's like one of those. It's like a good album where you love every single song. Yeah, like every Tool album. But until next week, I think this is uh, Yagama Lark <laughs> and Onishiro signing off.